Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is ending with something of a controversy. There's been a lot of reaction to the recent changes announced by the American Cancer Society regarding new mammogram guidelines. Well, the previous guidelines suggested that women receive an annual mammogram beginning at age 40. The new guidelines suggest that routine screenings should begin at age 45 and only earlier if there's a family history or other risk factors and only every other year for women 55 and over. This new recommendation is not being fully accepted by some clinicians at some of our top cancer hospitals. The American Cancer Society based the new guidelines on data that showed the average risk for women didn't seem to increase until women were closer to menopause, and that risk was about the same for women between the ages of 45 and 54. Meanwhile, these recommendations are actually more conservative than those suggested a few years ago by the United States Preventative Service Task Force, which said that women should wait till age 50 to begin annual mammograms. That recommendation received a firestorm of criticism. Well, I remember that well, and I mm-hmm. think we had some expert guests uh, on the show to talk about that. But it's important to note that it's always disruptive, and it certainly is confusing both for patients and clinicians to know what to do when the status quo is upset by new guidelines, especially when there is such vehement opposition coming from some quarters. Cancer hospitals like Memorial Sloan Kettering and MD Anderson Cancer Centers say they're going to continue their policy of recommending annual mammograms starting at age 40, and that sentiment being echoed across the country, at least for the time being. The impetus for the new guidelines also comes from the growing movement to reduce harm and unnecessary medical intervention for average risk women who have suspicious mammograms and then undergo invasive procedures only to discover that it was a false positive. Well, I I think the point that people often miss is the procedures do come with some risk mark. The new guidelines, though, give discretion to patients and clinicians who choose to opt for earlier screenings, saying that insurance should cover all mammograms that are ordered for whatever reason they're ordered. What I find interesting here is that the story is probably going to spark a lot of more frank conversations between women and their providers on this personal and important health screening. And the more dialogue patients have with their providers, the better opportunity everyone has to achieve better health and better outcomes. Well, that's something that our guest today is quite passionate about. Dr. Daniel Sands is co-founder of the Society for Participatory Medicine, which seeks to develop a clinical model where patients are really empowered and engaged and where clinicians facilitate that engagement with better use of health IT. He's been at the forefront of this movement, which is taking hold, so really look forward to that conversation. Laurie Robertson stops by. The managing editor of factcheck.org looks at false claims made about health policy in the public domain, but no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our guests by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, remember, email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Daniel Sand in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The head of the American Cancer Society says the new mammography guidelines are one of the most honest things to come out of the organization in years. Dr. Otis Brawley saying the new guidelines recommending women don't begin annual mammograms till age 45 instead of age 40 is based on rigorous analysis of decades of data on the matter. 
And that while increased use of mammograms saves lives, it's also caused much harm as well. The ACS recommendations are causing a cavalcade of responses, including many from cancer treatment specialists who caution against a quick switch to the later mammography start date. Pay for performance is coming to health care, albeit slowly. In the fledgling years of Medicare Accountable Care organizations, many pioneers have jumped in and some have gone away. In August, Medicare officials released 2014 financial details showing so far the ACOs have not saved the government money. The 20 ACOs in the Pioneer Program and the 333 in the Shared Savings Program reported total savings of $411 million. But after paying bonuses, the ACOs recorded a net loss of $2.6 million to the Medicare Trust Fund, a fraction of the half a trillion dollars Medicare spends on the elderly and disabled each year. Another reason to get more shut-eye. Not enough sleep can lead to early disease and an earlier death. A recent study out of South Korea shows chronic sleep deprivation of less than six hours per night can lead to the onset of metabolic syndrome, characterized by fatty middles, higher blood sugars, and fatty liver disease. The findings are drawn from two lifestyle surveys that included questions about sleep habits. Participants were followed during two three-year periods. About 560 people in the study, or about 22 percent, developed metabolic syndrome, according to results in the journal Sleep. Short sleep duration was linked to about 30% increased risk of high blood sugar and excess belly fat, as well as 56% higher odds of hypertension compared to those who slept longer. And a large-scale study in Britain shows a direct link between sleep apnea and gout, painful joint condition spurred on by increased levels of uric acid in the body. The study showed 50% more of the participants who suffered from untreated sleep apnea had a gout episode in the previous year. Oh, the times, they are changing, and so are attitudes about marijuana use. A study done from 2001 to 2002 showed about 4% of American adults admitted to pot use during that year. From 2012 to 2013, about 10% of Americans had admitted to using pot. Studies showed especially large increases among women, blacks, Hispanics, Southerners, and middle-aged and older people. The researchers write, if the amount of U.S. adults using marijuana increases, so will the number of those with marijuana use disorders. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Daniel Sands, founder and co-chair of the Society for Participatory Medicine, which seeks to promote a model of engaged patients, caregivers, and providers across the continuum of care. A faculty member at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Sands is an internist focused in on primary care transformation. He was chief medical officer at Cisco, and prior to that, chief medical director at Zix Corporation, developing early technologies for e-prescribing. Dr. Sands also developed some of the nation's first patient portals, electronic health records, and clinical support systems at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. Dr. Sands is a member of the American College of Physicians and the American College of Medical Informatics. He is named one of the 20 people who make healthcare better by Health Leaders Magazine. He earned his degree from Brown University, Ohio State College of Medicine, and Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Sands, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, that's great. And uh, you are one of the pioneers in the discipline of participatory medicine, which is now uh, gaining some traction across the healthcare landscape. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners, describe what you mean by participatory medicine and how vital is the engaged patient or 
e-patient to the success of this model? Sure. Um, I, I think we think about healthcare wrong in this country particularly. I, mean, I think we, uh, we often think about healthcare as a service industry. You know, the patient needs a service, goes to the doctor, gets the service. But I think that that, to me, that feels like a car wash. So it suggests that, you know, healthcare is kind of like a car wash. The car is dirty, needs to be washed, goes to the car wash, and somehow they come out and they're, they're healthy, they're fixed. <laughs> but we're, we're not succeeding in many ways as a healthcare system. We have a, a system that, that's way too costly. We, uh, we don't get the outcomes that we need, and uh, we don't have a satisfying uh, experience. We, meaning doctors and patients, we need to both be engaged in the process of healthcare. There needs to be an engagement there that, that is different from a service industry. I would argue that healthcare really is a collaboration. And collaboration depends on a number of things, open communication, sharing of information, um, uh, mutual respect. Uh, and, and one of those things is, is engagement. So, so this collaboration, this model of collaboration applied to healthcare, I would say is participatory medicine. That's how I would define it. So by doing this, I believe that we, we will get better outcomes at lower cost with a higher satisfaction from both patients and the healthcare providers. Well, Dr. Sands, patients run the full spectrum, right? Uh, And some, I think we can safely say, probably more interested in that engagement than others. I know you're co-chair of the Society for Participatory Medicine, e-patient David DeBroncart, has been a guest on the show. There's a, uh, a exemplar, perhaps, of a highly motivated patient who really engaged in his own recovery during a battle with stage four kidney cancer. But I'd really like to hear your perspective on what we might call the everyday patients with more typical, albeit uh, sometimes quite complex, healthcare management issues. And that's where the challenges lie for clinicians every day. What strategies are you deploying or thinking about to engage the primary care patient population to be more engaged? Well, you know, as, as, as you know, I still practice primary care part of my time, and, and Dave is one of my patients, uh, and that's not a violation of HIPAA because <laughs> we both talk about this all the time. And certainly patients who have life-threatening illnesses like Dave's uh, really, you know, have an urgent need to get more engaged in their health and uh, team with their health care providers. But I'd argue that it benefits any patient with any condition, so patients who need to exercise more, need to uh, improve their diet more. I think patients need to be uh, more engaged in their own health, but I think from the health care standpoint, from the interface between the patient and the doctor, there's a lot of benefits to that engagement. You know, how do we engage patients who just don't want to be engaged? There are some patients who are challenged with this idea of participatory medicine for reasons that are not related to us. They may be cultural reasons. But I think it's incumbent upon us to lower barriers to patient engagement whenever possible. Part of that is making sure that patients have easy access to the tools they need to take care of themselves and that they have access to healthcare information. And we should encourage them to seek out information as well as their own personal health information, that is their medical records. We should make it easy for them to access that. The third kind of information they need to be able to access is access information from other patients like them. In addition, they need to be able to access care conveniently. So we make it very difficult, for example, for patients to get an appointment with us. It takes forever. Finally, they just give up. So lowering barriers, I think, is one of the ways that you can engage patients. Patients get turned off when they 
they're just sort of stonewalled by the healthcare system. They can't stand how difficult it is to interact with the practice. So, you know, too often we depend upon the telephone and visits as sort of our only way of interacting with patients. And yet, Patients don't want to take a half a day out of their lives and come to see us if it's something that doesn't need to be done in a face-to-face visit. And God knows they can't reach us by phone. So (laughs) I view patient engagement as any other behavior change. In primary care, we're dealing with patients who need to make behavior change, whether it's to start taking a medication they need to be taking or whether it's quitting smoking. So a model that I use in my practice for patients in any behavior change situation is the Prochaska model. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of assessing where individuals are on a um, readiness to change Mm -hmm. continuum. What you want to do with any behavior change is try to assess where they are and then move them up to the next box and prevent them from slipping back. So I do that as I uh, look at patients in my practice and, and, you know, how willing they are to get engaged in their health. But, but they're still really not ready. And, and then there are other patients who are, you know, really thinking that, yeah, maybe I want to get more engaged in their health. And so by doing that, we can sort of move patients along through this continuum, through the Prochaska uh, stages. And, and I think we really can get patients engaged in their health. You know, I wanted to uh, give a plug to both you and ePatient Dave, who's not only your patient, but you also uh, co-wrote a book called uh, Let Patients Help. You know, one of the things that we hear from patients all the time is about the frustration of getting access uh, to their own health data. And, uh, but we're still having trouble with practices sharing that information. And I'm wondering sort of that cultural change. I'm wondering if you could use the five steps to move the medical practices <laughs> forward in That's uh, good. pre-contemplation. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, with doing that. And so uh, I'm wondering what your thought is about what's holding back and how is the Society for Participatory Medicine cultivating conversations within the community? Yeah, this is a really sticky problem, and this idea about interoperability of health records. You know, if you're getting your care in New York and you happen to be in Boston seeing me, I should be able to have access to your records, your send, health records. Send a carrier pigeon. <laughs> right, so the carrier pigeon might work. But, um, and frankly, we have a huge issue throughout the United States with that. And I, you know, can I, can I get this information from other practices? You know, even if they're, they're really close, I can't get that information. And so physicians have had to rely still on, on fax machines or, or just be content with not really knowing and just repeating whatever tests need to be done. But we could probably have a whole hour-long discussion about all of the issues related to that. Patients expect that that should happen. They believe mm-hmm. that that interoperability should take place. Um, and, 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 you know, I think they're frustrated by that. We, we uh, the Society for Participatory Medicine, did a national survey, and we found out that vast majority of patients, you know, people out there, expect that that kind of information should be available uh, to their doctors. But there's a whole other issue, which is that what about having you have access to your records from me? That is fortunately a little bit easier than it, than it has been in the past. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, um, I co-developed one of the first portals that gave patients access to their records. And today, patients not only have access to their records, but they have access to their notes as well. You know, so if you have a patient portal up, that patient portal gives the patient the ability to have access to their records. And, and fortunately, it is a requirement that doctors have uh, patient portals through which patients can access their records and even view, download, and transmit their records. 
But I think still many doctors are uncomfortable with that notion. Well, so much is transforming uh, in primary care. But one area that has not moved fast as forward as we might have contemplated is the way people get paid. And fee-for-service pretty much still dominates the landscape. And yet, these elements of transformation that you've been so interested in, care management that happens without patients coming in the office, secure emailing, telemedicine protocols, and yet not one of those things is associated with payment. Do you see this payment transformation accelerating? You know, up front, I would say that telemedicine actually is increasingly reimbursed. So that's one thing that certainly is. I've been using email in my practice since 1991, wow. which is a very long time mm-hmm. ago. In 1998, I co-authored the very first guidelines about how to use email with patients because we already knew from surveys that patients wanted to email mm-hmm. with their doctors. Their doctors weren't letting them. Mm-hmm. And still today, doctors are concerned about it. So one of the objections that doctors have had from very early on has been this issue, well, I don't get paid for it. You know, you don't get paid for talking on the phone with patients either. The only thing we get paid for, really, is seeing patients in the office. We have to communicate with our, our patients somehow. We just have to. And so right now, your only option is the telephone. And so would you rather talk to the patient on the phone, recognizing that it takes longer, or would you rather just exchange a quick email? Years ago, when I was uh, really doing a lot of investigations in this area, there was a study showing that an average telephone communication with a patient took five minutes. An average e-communication with a patient took two minutes. Hmm. So why wouldn't I want to do the email with them? And, you know, the other thing doctors complain about is say, well, why should I take care of patients for free? Well, in the fee-for-service world, we bill at different levels. Wouldn't you rather use your office time for taking care of patients who really need to be seen because they're sicker? But if I can bill at a higher level for that time, that's a better thing. And maybe it's through video conferencing or maybe it's through the phone or maybe it's through um, secure messaging. You know, certainly well over 50% of doctors have some element of quality reimbursement in their contract, and that's going to increase in the coming years. I don't think there's anyone who really thinks that that this is uh, ending. You know, our changes in attitude when we're with a patient is not something that takes more time. Admitting we don't know when a patient asks a question rather than sort of making something up or ignoring them or whatever, that doesn't take more time. Encouraging patients to read about their illness through things they find on the Internet or through patient support communities online That's the stuff that doesn't take more time either. So I think there's a lot we can do to practice participatory medicine without requiring more time of us. We're speaking today with Dr. Daniel Sands, internist medical informatics expert and founder of the Society for Participatory Medicine, which seeks to promote a model of actively engaged patients, caregivers, and providers across a continuum of care. You know, you were talking earlier about the sort of uh, patient's expectation on uh, health interoperability and that they'd have all of the information available. And you now have, over the last uh, half a dozen years, tens of millions of Americans now utilizing some kind of health tracking or monitoring device. That data really hasn't found a home Apple's launched its HealthCat product. Other 
players like Google and Samsung. Uh, you, but you just spoke at the Health 2.0 conference where many of these health tech entrepreneurs converge. So what's the buzz at the conference regarding these new uh, emerging health IT platforms, especially platforms that have the power to transform care as well as research? You know, I, I think that, well, let me sort of give you an amalgam of several recent conferences I've been at in this space. I think there's certainly a lot of excitement about the fact that, oh, you know, patients can, can track their own information and they can get feedback from a computer about how they're doing and this and that. I think that the real challenge for us and as patients, doctors, whatever, is is if we want that information to be actually a part of our medical record and part of our medical care, that's a whole different ball of wax. So, yeah, there are lots of interesting tracking devices and health apps out there, and some of them have decent information that they're giving. Um, but, 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 you know, if I really want this, you know, my doctor to be part of this conversation, that's a whole different thing. And uh, let me come back to that in a second. Um, one of the things about the health apps, and there are, you know, depending on what you read, there may be 60,000 different health apps out there. Um, and so there are a lot of them. But it turns out that uh, in, in, in recent surveys of these health, health apps, um, not that many of them, you know, uh, acquire really clinically useful information. Um, and then there are the tracking devices, many of which people are buying, using for a short while, and putting them in a drawer. And so the average user isn't using them for more than six months. And, and, and so you have all these challenges. And then there's an issue of accuracy. So let's suppose that I'm tracking my footsteps, and it's just not accurate. I mean, there was a, a New York Times review uh, uh, maybe a year or so ago, and they used, I don't know, five different tracking devices, and they put them all on themselves. And they all got wildly different numbers about <laughs> how much activity there were. So... Um, uh, on the other hand, we have opportunities like uh, uh, blood pressure cuffs and scales and things that are FDA certified and that they are accurate. And they're connected, uh, you know, usually wirelessly, so that they can transmit information somewhere into the cloud. Um, and, and the question is, where is that somewhere going to be and how are we going to use this stuff in, in healthcare? So I think it's really important to think about that issue, about that interface. I mean, certainly you can get, you know, if you want to track your, your food eating habits and your weight and whatever is on your own, that's fine. And in fact, there are a whole, there's a whole uh, group, if you will, of, of people out there that, that are part of something they call the quantified self-movement. Mm -hmm. And they're interested in tracking everything <laughs> they can about themselves. And, and they don't really give a darn about the rest of the healthcare system, the, the professional healthcare system, uh, if, if they just have enough information, then they'll be able to keep themselves healthy. That's, that's a, a theory that I've theory. stated many times. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and, of course, if you practice medicine, you know that that's just not true. It just doesn't make any sense, but that's okay. Um, so, so, but, so if we're going to incorporate any of this information into the, the, uh, the, the healthcare system, and we might want to do that, by the way, and why would we want to do that? Well, you know, as we are paid, as we're moving from fee-for-service to fee-for-value, and we need to improve the outcomes of patients who have chronic conditions, um, you know, one of the things we need to do is we need to understand what's going on with them all the time, not just in the 15 minutes that they're in the doctor's mm -hmm. office. And, and so one of the ways you might do that is through uh, frequent light touches in between visits instead of visits. Um, and part of that will inclu include um, acquiring data. But then this data needs to come back to the 
the, uh, the, the doctor's office in a way that is uh, um, that we're filtering the signal from the noise. So we're looking for the important, we're identifying the important trends and showing them to the practice. Um, not really looking at all the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all, all the, the data points that could possibly exist. What we want to know is what are the significant trends so that we know who uh, we need to reach out to, which patients are, are getting into trouble. And, and to be, although I wrote a paper about this before I did this, I do work part-time for a company called Conversa Health that is doing something in this space. We've been speaking today with Dr. Daniel Sands, internist, medical informatics expert, and the founder of the Society for Participatory Medicine. You can learn more about his work by going to his website, drdannysands.com, or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Danny Sands or through the Society of Participatory Medicine at S4PM. Dr. Sands, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Jeb Bush claimed that while President Obama had promised to lower health insurance premiums by $2,500 per family, the president's own team says premiums will increase by $2,900 over the next 10 years. That's misleading. While Obama didn't always make it clear, he wasn't promising to cut premiums, but rather promising to cut the rate of growth in premiums. As for the future, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services projects private insurance premiums per enrollee will rise by nearly $2,900 over nine years, but that is moderate growth by historical standards. Bush's comparison leaves the impression that a $2,900 increase would be a market departure from Obama's promise, but it's actually an apples-to-oranges comparison. We have no problem with Bush faulting the president for his broken promise. In fact, we've fact-checked Obama's misleading claim several times over the years. But Obama was talking about a $2,500 reduction compared with what would have happened without the Affordable Care Act or other changes to the health care system. Bush's $2,900 increase figure, meanwhile, is a straight increase. He gets that figure from the latest National Health Expenditures Report from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The $2,900 increase, which is from 2015 to 2024, would be an average 5.82% increase per private health insurance enrollee per year. How does that compare to the past? The rate of increase was 5% per year from 2007 to 2015, and before Obama took office from 2000 to 2008, it was 9.4%. The National Health Expenditures Report said that the growth rate would, quote, remain modest from 2015 through 2018 and then pick up in a delayed response to stronger economic growth. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, 
Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Each year, more than one million babies die at birth, and another three million die within the first few weeks of life, often from preventable causes. And when babies are born prematurely, the risks escalate. Newborns, and particularly preemies, have a considerable amount of difficulty regulating their own body temperature, and without access to incubators, babies in the third world often succumb to hypothermia. That got former Stanford MBA student Jane Chen thinking, how do we develop a low-cost solution to the problem? My team and I realized what was needed was a local solution, something that could work without electricity, that was simple enough for a mother or a midwife to use, given that the majority of births still take place in the home. We needed something that was portable, something that could be sterilized and reused across multiple babies, and something ultra-low cost compared to the $20,000 that an incubator in the U.S. costs. Speaking at a recent TED Talk, Chen said that they developed a cocoon-like device called simply Embrace, a thermal body wrap that encases the baby and helps regulate body temperature for up to six hours. What you see here looks nothing like an incubator. It looks like a small sleeping bag for a baby. It's waterproof. There's no seams inside, so you can sterilize it very easily. But the magic is in this pouch of wax. This is a phase change material. It's a wax-like substance with a melting point of human body temperature, 37 degrees Celsius. You can melt this simply using hot water, and then when it melts, it's able to maintain one constant temperature for four to six hours at a time, after which you simply reheat the pouch. And it creates a warm microenvironment for the baby. And Chen and her developers have managed to keep the cost of the Embrace Baby Warmer at around $25 per unit. Since launching the product in 2010, they estimate that over 150,000 babies' lives may have been saved with the device, which is easy to sterilize and design for multiple uses. The Embrace Infant Warmer has earned numerous international awards for design and efficacy, a low-cost, high-tech, portable temperature regulator designed to regulate preemies' body temperatures to ensure that they not only survive premature birth, but ultimately thrive as well. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.